Welcome to the Recovering from Religion podcast. We are a vibrant international community for those who have questions or doubts about their faith. I'm your host, Tim Rimel, along with my co-host, Bill Prickett. Hey, Bill. Hey, Tim. How's it going? It is going well. How are you today? I'm doing really well. Uh, I'm uh, sitting here in North Texas, and this is the first time in months I've been able to open our door and let some cool air in. So we're finally experiencing fall. Very nice. Yes. That is, still, that is yet to come in Northern California. <laughs> I'm loving it. It is only a word on our calendar at the moment. <laughs> So we're going to be talking about Jehovah's Witnesses today, and I know that you have had experience with it because you said you used to teach on this topic. I used to teach uh, a course uh, for local churches and my own church when I was in the ministry, and I talked about uh, other faiths, other denominations, a little bit of church history, and I talked about what we called at the time cults and sects. Um, not sex, S-E-X, but sects, S-E-C-T-S, and just talked about the difference in those two, and and we discussed Jehovah's Witnesses. And then for several years, I worked with uh, campus organizations, training people in, uh, please don't hate me, personal evangelism. And we would talk about uh, the, the, the whole idea of going and sharing your faith. And I always... Uh, kind of use Jehovah's Witnesses as an example, because I've never met many people who know their Bible like Jehovah's Witnesses do. So I have had some experience in, uh, but it's just cursory. So I'm looking forward to hearing from someone who has been there. So how did you differentiate a sect from a cult? I know, you know we had talked about this a little bit earlier in, in my denomination in the Pentecostal Church of God, who was the only one going to heaven. We differentiated cults as people who had a difference of opinion on things like the Trinity. And the irony of that is growing up in the Pentecostal church, there were two sects. One was the oneness movement, which was the Pentecostal God, Jesus is one. And then the other one had the Trinitarian doctrine, but it was a very clear distinction between who was in and who was out. Well, exactly. And the way we defined it, and it's honestly been years since I taught this, but uh, a sect was someone who was very close to uh, uh, what we considered mainstream Christianity. And I don't mean to offend anyone out there uh, by saying mainstream or traditional. Uh, I don't mean that in an exclusive sense, but that's how we defined it. If they if they maintained like belief in the Bible and it had to do with belief about uh, Jesus, the uh, the divinity or the humanity, uh, those kinds of things, as opposed to a cult, they were outside of that. They were they got their inspiration and their beliefs from something other than the Bible uh, or extra biblical. So we would we would talk about the difference in a cult and a sect in that way. So in in my traditional uh, upbringing and my tradition, which was Southern Baptist, we saw Jehovah's Witnesses as a sect. They We shared beliefs, but we also had differing beliefs. Would you have welcomed them into your congregation? Uh, me personally, uh, or me personally, as far as our, our faith is concerned, there would have to be uh, some change in, in belief system on their part, I think, we would have to see it that way because there were certain things that we saw as, pardon the phrase, fundamental that Jehovah's Witnesses probably would not share. And, and I feel like we're talking about a Jehovah's Witness in the third person when there's someone here with us who can actually who can actually speak first person to this. Right. So let me let me give a little background before we bring Lloyd. Down. OK, um, so the Jehovah's Witnesses are a, are considered a millenarian restorationist Christian denomination. And by the way, I pulled this off of Wikipedia because I'm not writing a college paper. 
So hopefully our guests will correct me. Uh, But what that means is that a millenarian restorationist is part of a transformation to restore Christianity to what it was originally meant to be. And this can be really said of a lot of denominations. Interestingly enough, when I was reading this, I found that the Jehovah's Witnesses were founded in the 1870s, which was only about 130 years after the founding of evangelical Christianity, which was setting out to basically do the same thing and put God back in his rightful place. Jehovah's Witnesses do have some very interesting doctrines and ideologies, which is different from the mainstream. And I'm sure we're going to cover some of those today. Um, One of those already mentioned, they don't believe in the Trinity. And interestingly enough, again, the the Trinity was not in the original belief system. It was around the fourth century when they started to talk back and forth. and, and, And an idea of a Trinity was considered heretical at that time. Um, I discovered that there are about 8.45 million Jehovah's Witnesses worldwide, and they are governed by a group of men, eight men, in New York, or I guess Brooklyn, New York, somewhere around New York. Um, So they're the ones that make all of the decisions for the organization. Also, I I found that the Pew Forum on Religious Life Survey in in 2008 said that only about 37% of people raised in the group actually stayed in the group and that 65% of adults in the U.S. are converts. And what was really striking about that is that that's not how most religions grow. Most religions grow organically. They have babies and they perpetuate their faith. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses seem to be doing something really well when it comes to evangelistic efforts. So I'm really excited to hear Lloyd's perspective on this, and uh, I'll let you go ahead and introduce him, Bill. Okay. Uh, Lloyd Evans, our guest today, is the founder of jwsurvey.org. He is also uh, an author. He authored the book, The Reluctant Apostate, about his experience in Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, He has an amazing YouTube channel. If you get a chance to listen, I I spent most of uh, Monday or Tuesday just captivated, Lloyd, with your YouTube channel. Uh, I, I love listening to you talk. I'm glad I'm not the only one here today with an accent. So I I love listening to your YouTube. He has about 11,000 subscribers and 2.5 million views. So he is a a passionate advocate against cults and religious fundamentalism. And so he is going to be sharing with us some of his experience, some of what he's learned, and to help us and talk us through uh, the process of recovering from that extremism. So Lloyd, thank you very much for being with us today. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me. Now you are currently in Croatia, but you told us that that's not your original uh, birthplace. That's right. You can probably tell from my accent that I'm a Brit. I was born and raised in Manchester or near Manchester in the UK and it was actually moving to Croatia after I got married to uh, a Croatian Jehovah's Witness. That was kind of instrumental in a way to me waking up because uh, I moved to Croatia kind of resolved to learn the language and overcome the language barrier when it came to my religion. But I found that by because I didn't know Croatian and I, I suddenly found myself sat there in the meetings not having a clue what was being said. <laughs> um, it, was, it was the perfect storm really for all of these suppressed doubts that I'd been kind of, um, I, I kind of had in my pending tray uh, for years. It, it was the perfect storm for them to come to the fore and within a few months I was already realizing that I wouldn't be a Jehovah's Witness for very long. And and did that have any impact on your marriage? Yeah, to begin with, it was terrifying um, because you you go through all of the question. Well, first of all, you have all these existential questions of who you are and what you know what what are you going to do with your life and what's going to become of you. And you you're also thinking about the fact that you are committed to a relationship that was based or predicated on the fact that we would share the same faith. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was a very real possibility that I would have to be divorced, or or there would be some huge shakeup. And I think I came. It's difficult to say. I mean, I wasn't diagnosed or anything, but I think I came close to having uh, some kind of nervous breakdown. 
I, re- I remember long days just not wanting to do anything and just being utterly depressed. Mm. Um, yeah. And then you you eventually kind of figure things out and it turned out that my wife, although she was originally very distressed that I was um, losing interest in, in the religion, it turned out eventually that she ended up uh, leaving with me. So she was maybe a year behind me, but it's by no means that straightforward all the time. There are lots of situations where the marriage really does crumble. Yeah. Uh, how did how did we do on the basic overview of Jehovah's Witnesses? Oh, there were one or two things that were kind of a little bit off. <laughs> it is Wikipedia. Yeah. I didn't want to put Tim on the spot, but I thought yeah. you could just kind of <laughs> enlighten us here. I'd, I'd have to take another look at the statistics you gave about, you know, when you were talking about um, the success with recruitment, because my experience, particularly in the last few years, looking at kind of reports from inside the religion is that they're doing terribly when it comes to you know, making new Jehovah's Witnesses from completely fresh converts. It's ne- it's never been my experience. And b- believe me, I've, I've been like a, a pioneer, which is like someone who dedicates 70 hours per month to preaching. I did that for like nine or 10 years, and I never succeeded in convincing one person I met doing the evangelism work to become a Jehovah's Witness. And I wasn't that bad at doing it. <laughs> um, it it's just that when you when you wake up, you realize what was wrong. You realize that everyone's got Google. And no matter how good you are at what you do, and no matter how interested they may appear when you leave their doorstep, it's just a few clicks before they realize what, what a sham it all is. So what, what do you... When you're talking to these people, what would you say are, are the demographics or characteristics of people that do convert or do eventually come into the faith? I, th- I think that to join um, any cult, and I, I do, it's not a word that I use gleefully. I, I, I try and use it depending on the audience I'm speaking to, but I do think that word applies to Jehovah's Witnesses. And I think that to convince someone to join any cult, you need well, first of all, you need a heck of a lot of deception. You need, you need, and it doesn't have to be willful deception. It just right. has to be people who have themselves been deceived and are so convinced of it that they'll go out and try and deceive others. But those people need to stumble on people who are, in my view, going through some kind of crisis in their lives, who are in some way emotionally vulnerable. Um, I know that the witnesses first made landfall in my family through my father's mother, my nana, I used to call her. And that was in that was shortly after she'd lost both her parents. So that gives you some idea of the kind of state you have to be in. And, and you can imagine when you're in that situation, when everything seems hopeless, you get a knock at the door and it's two smiling people who say, well, don't worry, we have all the answers for you. Mm-hmm. If you'll just read this book, you can look forward to a blissful future where all of our concerns and all of our needs will be dealt with and we can have a completely happy future with everything that we need. So I can I can understand why people in that situation would go for it, but if you're not going through that kind of crisis and, and you're, you have kind of like a balanced uh, life and you're, you know, you're happy and contented, Again, it's just a few clicks on Google before you realize that it's not what it appears. Well, and you take it, you, I'm assuming it's probably harder today because there's Google. Um, mm. Years ago, when I dealt with Jehovah's Witnesses, there was no Google. So you either had to know what you believed in your own Bible uh, uh, knowledge to have a discussion because there was, really was no way to quantify my belief versus their belief. Mm. Yeah. yeah. You don't need Google. I mean, Google's very helpful. Mm-hmm. It gets you there much more quickly. But I'd arrived, bear in mind that Jehovah's Witnesses are told to avoid, uh, quote unquote, apostate content as though it's from the devil. And when I took my first few clicks on an apostate website, I had this genuine fear of like a fireball coming down out of the sky and rendering me a, a pile of smoldering ashes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was with great trepidation that I even reached that stage. But I'd managed to kind of, even with that prohibition in place, 
I'd managed to figure out in my own head that certain things just didn't add up. There were certain things that didn't make sense. Um, and I even tell people, uh, because when I, you know, you mentioned that you've, you, you had some very kind things to say about my YouTube channel. You'll have noticed that a lot of my videos are recorded in front of a bookshelf, which is mm. brimming with Watchtower literature. Yes, I did and notice the, that. <laughs> and I get a lot of comments from Jehovah's Witnesses who visit my channel and say, why have you got all the literature? You know, what's your purpose? You know, surely if you only read it, you'll realize that it's the truth. And it's like, no, it's because of this literature that I know it's not the truth. And there's no better way of explaining to a witness that it doesn't make sense than showing them from their own literature how man-made and artificial and corrupt the whole thing is. So can you explain a little bit about your own background, where you grew up in this this um, cult, as you call it? Mm. What, what was your thought process? How did you go through this process of, of thinking and believing when you were younger and then getting to where you finally came out of it? Yeah, so um, it's, a, it's an unusual thing, I guess. I mean, not every everyone has their own stories of growing up and I'm sure everyone's grown up in dysfunctional families where something's not quite right or they have some kind of challenge to contend with. My own challenge was constantly believing that the end of the world was coming and that all of my school friends would be worthy of death when that happened, which isn't a very healthy approach to take <laughs> when you're dropped off at school to have that in your head. Um, and I was that convinced because of the way I'd been raised by my parents. And I would add that I'm, I'm going to portray my parents as fanatics in the story I'm, ab I'm about to tell you, but they were actually, um, by witness standards, I would say they were fairly laid back and liberal. Uh, I, knew of, I knew of parents who were far stricter in our congregation, but I remember a story I often tell, but it just perfectly sums up what my childhood was about. Um, it was a, a family worship evening. A family worship um, evening is what, witness families have and it's basically where the parents have like a session with their children to um, go through a bible story with them or or do something that's oriented towards the religion basically and uh, my dad decided to really mix things up and he made the phone ring which wasn't too hard to do back then uh, and he picked it up and had a pretend conversation with what was supposedly uh, another elder from the kingdom hall because my dad was an elder and when he put the phone down, he had this kind of panicked look on his face and said that uh, the Great Tribulation was starting. The Great Tribulation is like the, the, the run-up to Armageddon. And he said that the authorities are coming for us, our congregation is on the run, and we're all to meet in a nearby forest. It was Macclesfield Forest. So we need to pack our things, get in the car and go immediately because it's all starting, basically. So I took it completely seriously. I ran upstairs, got my school bag, started cramming in all of this kind of basic survival equipment. I was really into Enid Blyton books at the time. So in went the binoculars, the penknife, the compass, all of these, the torch, but also books, I, I, you know, religious books, Jehovah's Witness books that I thought might have some bearing on what was happening. Um, went back downstairs and could see immediately from the looks on people's faces that I'd just been completely taken in. Yeah. But for those few that for those few seconds, Armageddon was really happening for me. And in a way I think that's quite unique because people will you know, witnesses will live for decades and never see Armageddon. But I did experience it, albeit just for a few seconds and albeit it wasn't real. So I know what it feels like. Um, but the whole point of the exercise was to drill home to me how um, how important this was and how we should be prepared for Armageddon to strike at any moment. Uh, and again, this kind of indoctrination, I don't feel it rendered me uh, a completely emotionally stable person. And it certainly isn't good to be dropped off at school and to form friendships with people in the classroom who you know are going to die uh, very soon if they don't become Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah, that 
it's got to be traumatic, the experience of, of the end time, but also uh, I, I think about what you're saying, making real connections with people would, would be a problem if you know they're not going to live through this. Mm. Oh, definitely. And um, you also feel some responsibility as well, because that, that's another side of it is that uh, witnesses are told that if they don't fully participate in the preaching work, which is all voluntary, by the way, they don't get paid for it, but they do have to count their time. So when a witness calls on you, it's not just they've decided on the spur of the moment, oh, I'm going to start knocking on doors on this street. It's a very kind of systematic organized work that's done in each local locality and witnesses will actually report every hour that they've done in the month at the end of the month to their elders so when when they're on your doorstep they're literally count, counting that time they, they even call it counting time what what is the how does that is it like a i'm sure they don't get a toaster at the end of the month what is the oh it's all imaginary it's all you all it's 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 um storing up treasures in heaven isn't okay, it so okay. you, you you basically write down the figure on a on a slip and you give it over to your your elder and he goes away and stores that information somewhere okay. don't get me started on jehovah's witnesses and data use of data <laughs> but it's all supposed to be that you're kind of storing up this kind of credit in this kind of heavenly bank account basically but the point is that it's not just about doing as much as you feel you can do. Well, it is like that, but you're also told as a witness that if you don't do the maximum that your circumstances will allow you to do, that you will be considered blood guilty and you too will be liable for destruction at Armageddon for not having done enough. So that's how seriously <laughs> they take Armageddon. You know, I, I just, I'm having a hard time shaking the image of a little boy being told that, it's a, the world is coming to an end and the terror mm. that must have felt for you. You had to carry that. I mean, you must carry that in, to some extent to this day, or at least have, yeah. have had to work through that. Yeah. Well, it, when I, when I was, when I set about writing my book, which you've kindly mentioned, the reluctant apostate, um, it was a very cathartic exercise to explore all of these things that happened to me as a growing up as a Jehovah's witness child and to kind of, it's only really when you write them down and see the words in front of you that you think, gosh, that's not normal. That just isn't normal. Um, there was a similar experience where I got home from school. I, and this is probably not unique to Jehovah's Witnesses. I'd imagine there's a lot who grow up in fundamental Christianity who have a similar experience. I came home from school once and I was um, eating my dinner. And uh, my mum said, so what have you learned today, Lloyd? So I said, um, well, I learned that a long time ago, fish crawled out of the sea and became dinosaurs. <laughs> and I'm sure that's not quite how it was expressed to me in the classroom, but that's how I'd remembered it, you know. And there was just this look of horror on my parents' faces. And they made it very clear that what I'd been taught was a lie. And they very quickly after that uh, went actually went to the school armed with a, a creationist publication that witnesses were distributing back then and remonstrated with the teacher for daring to teach their child about evolution. So. Mm. Since I don't know that much about the internal life of a Jehovah's Witness, can you walk us through it? If you're born into a Jehovah's Witness home, and you're you know, pretty much raised. How, what is your entry into the life of the church? For I know that you know if you're a Catholic, you're baptized as a baby, and mm -hmm. you know in my in my background as a Baptist, you're you make a profession of faith and you're baptized by immersion. For a Jehovah's Witness, it, as one born into a Jehovah's Witness home, what is the entry into mm -hmm. the life of the church? Okay, so you from from almost when you can do anything, from when you can, even when you can't do anything, even when you can't even walk and you're in your pushchair uh, or stroller or whatever it is you call it, that you're taken to the kingdom hall and and you're kind of 
kept there during the meeting. So you have this situation where children who normally want to do anything but spend two hours in a windowless building are kind of <laughs> trapped there <laughs> with with coloring books and and random toys that they've been allowed to bring if they've been allowed to bring toys. And you, you you kind of quickly learn in that situation various survival tactics like asking to go to the bathroom, um, anything to kind of break the monotony. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you do that from a very young age. You're, you're taken to the meetings. You're also taken around with your parents in the preaching work. When you get old enough, um, and I say old enough, you, you're going to be probably, um, let's say, around five six seven years old you'll start be you'll you'll start thinking about or your parents will start encouraging you to become an un, what's called an unbaptized publisher and that basically means that you are are officially involved in preaching on behalf of the congregation and all of your activity you, you fill in those those numbers at the end of every month along with everyone else and your figures get put together with everyone else's figures it's just that you're not baptized yet so that's kind of the entry level um but then the next step up from that is baptism and that's when you become a baptized publisher and from that point there's no turning back uh, when it comes to shunning because once you get baptized you're basically committing yourself to the organization for life and if you ever change your mind and decide that actually uh, I made a mistake here, it's not quite for me. I think I'll leave if that's okay with you guys. Oh no, I'm sorry, not possible. If you do leave, you will be shunned by all your believing friends and relatives, which is the situation I'm in at the moment. And that way, that's like Amish as well. The Amish do yeah. that. Yeah. Few religions do it in, as well. I mean, it's 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 not a good gig if you're a Muslim. I, I understand if right. If you and, stop and, you know, some some have an official position or or a, a stance on it, like like you guys and like Amish. Others, it's an unspoken thing where you just don't don't interact anymore. Mm-hmm. You uh, in the Baptist yeah. church, we would put somebody out or not have in our term we wouldn't fellowship with them anymore mm-hmm. no it's highly codified with um jehovah's witnesses they're actually quite brazen about it at the 2016 convention i called it the worst convention ever and made a series of videos about it um they actually had a series of videos uh, showing a girl called sonia who gets disfellowships and and it was all to show witnesses that someone in that situation should be shunned completely and and not spoken to. And and the worst part of that uh, symposium, it was all uh, fictitious, office, obviously, but the message was very clear. They had uh, Sonia calling her parents, who were still witnesses, and you saw the, the phone ringing on the kitchen countertop, and the parents saw the name on the screen and refused to pick up the phone. Now, Sonia, anything could have been happening to Sonia at that moment. Anything could have been happening, but they were to not even pick up the phone to see what was what was up. That's the extent to which witnesses are encouraged to shun. So, and you know, that's really, um, I guess, empathy is one of the basic human emotions that we have. How do they put that aside? How do they? How are they able to even do that to their own children where, where they can just see somebody who may be in a time of need and yet just completely cut that off in their minds? Because their, their minds no longer belong to them. That's, that's, the really, that's the kind of thing you find out when you get to the bottom of the rabbit hole is that as much as we like to think of humans as being these elevated spiritual creatures who can basically have mastery over, over their own minds, under the right conditions, you can control what a person thinks and how they behave. And witnesses are subjected to very, very coercive techniques from the moment they can talk or think um, that result in them viewing the organization as more important than anything else. And it's not pitched to them that way. They think that it's Jehovah who's at the top of this pyramid, but it's actually just just the governing body. It's just the organization. 
but they've been coerced and trained and manipulated and conditioned over many years into thinking that the organization comes first. And that's why when you finally break free and you get out, not, not only are you horrified to find yourself shunned by everyone who you ever cared about, but you also find that the organization has left a lot of kind of stains on your subconscious and a lot of issues that you have to work through because suddenly you're in the big wide world and you have to think for yourself. Well, absolutely, because that I've seen that in fundamentalism and talking to other people who have come out of fundamentalism or like Tim and myself who've come out of conversion therapy, it just leaves such a hole because you've been told what to think. And, mm. and, and, and you think that what you think comes from God. And mm. then all of a sudden you're out there having to re-examine everything. Indeed. I think we're going to take a break right now. We'll be back uh, very shortly. Recovering from Religion is funded by those who believe in what we do. We invite you to support us with a monthly or one-time donation. Go to our website, recoveringfromreligion.org, and click on the Donate button for instructions. On the website, you'll also find an extensive database of resources, including links, articles, and videos. We offer 24-hour phone and chat line support, along with the links to meetup groups in 20 communities around the U.S. With our Secular Therapy Project, we can connect you with a professional who offers evidence-based, non-religious treatment. Our partner therapists understand the complexities of rethinking or leaving your faith. Finally, Recovering from Religion is an entirely volunteer-run organization. If you're interested in being a volunteer with us, please visit recoveringfromreligion.org and look for the Volunteer tab. Lloyd, in talking, you were talking about the programming that goes in. And I mentioned earlier the interactions that I had with, with Jehovah's Witnesses years ago, and they did seem to know the Bible uh, mm. so well. What is the training that they get? Oh, um, they're very well trained in the Bible. Um, but what you find is that when you get out is that it's all based on proof texts. Uh, well. <laughs> proof texts. <laughs> don't, don't, get me, don't get me started on that. <laughs> so they, they kind of, then they're not going to know everything about the Bible. I, I've been quite blown away uh, listening to, I don't know whether you're familiar with Megan Phelps Roper, who used to be in the Westboro Baptist Church. Yes. And you listen to her talk, she really knows her Bible, and she knows lots of kind of obscure verses that I hadn't even thought about as a witness. But when you're a witness, you're basically trained on what the main issues are, what the main, what the main kind of... Um, how can I put it? The main cornerstones of your faith are and how to defend them. Mm -hmm. So so here's our position on the Trinity, and here's the verses that we would use to defend it. Here's our position on why God allows suffering. These are the verses that we would use to defend it, and so on and so forth. So it's not like um, an encyclopedic, comprehensive knowledge of the Bible that witnesses have. It's just how to basically defend and uh, act as an apologist for the various foundational tenets of the religion. It was always more than I felt that I had encountered with most of the average church members that I interacted with on a daily basis. Yeah, I can imagine because, well, <laughs> I say I can imagine, that's what we were conditioned to think about mainstream Christianity is that they didn't know their Bibles. And that's and true. You, you would get these stories that, you know, people would come in having been to um, been to a church all their lives, and they would comment about how we had our Bibles out all the time. <laughs> and um, I guess if you have your Bible out just a few times, and you're used to never having it out, then it's going to be a big difference. But um, I actually shudder at how little um, I actually really knew my Bible because I've learned so much about the Bible. Um, since leaving the organization and reading what scholars have to say on it. So the likes of uh, Israel Finkelstein and Bart Ehrman and people who have really devoted their lives to finding out not just what the Bible says and what the teachings are, but who was behind it. What does the archaeology say? What's the historicity of this particular book? What do we know about 
the uh, Exodus narrative and how that squares up with Egyptian archaeology. So all that kind of thing, I'm still quite wet behind the ears and nowhere near where I'd like to be, but it's like a breath of fresh air reading what grown-ups have to say about the Bible (laughs) rather than this kind of juvenile narrative that I've been spoon-fed my whole life. Yeah, you know, I I find that interesting as well. And and I did that with my latest book where I went back behind what my Pentecostal faith taught me because I wanted to know what other scholars were saying who didn't have an agenda or didn't have a political or theological point of view. And it was very eye-opening to have gone to Bible school and have gotten ordained and had these credentials and yet didn't know. Mm. I didn't know the history of my own faith. Mm. So you see things quite differently. And it's difficult to process that information when your whole life has been based on this one particular perspective about what the Bible is like and how it's supposed to be read. How do you deal with these passages when people who are still uh, witnesses, when they come at you and say, well, you're reading this wrong or you're seeing this incorrectly? What is your response to that? I don't have that a great deal. Um, I think the the witnesses who come on my channel and try and ambush me uh, usually say, oh, you're lying, to which I'll say, please show me where I'm lying, and then they won't say anything. <laughs> I, won't see, I won't hear from them again. Um, but basically, my, my go-to response to almost any objection that I get from a Jehovah's Witness is, show me the proof that it's true. Show me the proof, not just that the Bible is authentic or that it's the Word of God, but that the Watchtower has a mandate from the almighty creator of the universe to decide how the Bible should be interpreted. Show me how you prove, and this is what witnesses actually believe. Show me how you prove that between the years 1914 and 1919, an invisible Jesus invisibly inspected all the religions of the earth and invisibly chose the leaders of Watchtower to be his one and only faithful slave. Please show me the proof of that. And I'll take down my channel, I'll withdraw my books from publication, and I'll take JW Survey down. Because you'll have proved to me that the religion's true. But you're not going to do that because you can't. It's just something that you have to believe based purely on faith. And if you're going to base your beliefs purely on faith, you might as well believe that Joseph Smith dug up some golden plates somewhere and it was this lost book. Or you might as well believe almost any other religion that makes entirely unfalsifiable claims. Well, and that's the that's the entire concept of faith. It's not provable. Mm. It's not verifiable. Yeah. Regardless of whether you're a Jehovah's Witness, a Mormon, uh, metaphysical, any of that. And so mm. it's not about proving. And, you know, one of our hallmarks is we're not here to talk anyone into or out of their faith. It's just no. let's look at it. Let's realize that it is what it is. I just, yeah. you know, as a person and, of faith myself, I don't want to argue about it. I don't want to. No. I don't want to defend it. I don't want to convince you of it. And, and just to be clear, I I don't lose sleep about anyone believing <laughs> whatever they like. It really makes no difference to me whether Jehovah's Witness, whether an individual who is a Jehovah's Witness, want if they want to be a Jehovah's Witness, that's entirely fine. Um, the only the only slight issue I have is. Uh, teaching children things that can't be proven. I have an issue with that. But I also have an issue with organizations that are abusive. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's what I wanted you to to speak on, because in one of your videos, you make reference to Jehovah's Witnesses and the abuse of children. Mm. Can Can you expound on that for us? So Jehovah's Witnesses have um, a culture, really, that lends itself very well to individuals who are pedophiles to prey on children and not have their um, crimes dealt with properly. So first and foremost, you have what's called the two witness rule. And this is a rule that is based on partly on the Mosaic law, partly on a few words that were written in the New Testament, which suggests that you cannot, um, before you incriminate someone or before you prosecute 
before you prosecute someone, you need to have at least another witness. In other words, more than one witness to what Correct. they've done. Correct. Um, witnesses apply this to judging sin in the congregation, which is fair enough, but they also apply it to deciding whether criminal things have happened, specifically criminal things to do with children. So they actually have in the book that is distributed to elders, um, it uses the words, uh, leave the matter in Jehovah's hands. If, if something happens for which there isn't another witness, including child abuse, elders must leave the matter in, other, in, in Jehovah's hands. In other words, pretend it's not happened. Um, and that is why when you do some digging on this subject, you'll find that there are multiple lawsuits that have either concluded against Watchtower or they have been settled by Watchtower. There's actually one that's literally just, uh, uh, they've just re reached a verdict yesterday in Montana uh, to girls who were, who had their um, abuse covered up by a local congregation there. I'm actually going to be recording a video about it this evening. Um, and in 2014, uh, sorry, 2015, the Australian Royal Commission uh, in Aust uh, looked into what was going on with Jehovah's Witnesses in Australia. And they they actually managed to get the records for the Australian branch of Jehovah's Witnesses. And they actually discovered that going back to 1950, there had been 1,006 uh, perpetrators of sexual abuse who that the organization had kept records about and not a single one had been reported to the authorities. So there's lots of reason I could do a I could go on for hours about what the actual reasons are, but suffice to say there is this kind of a culture that lends itself very well to these uh, awful crimes being swept under the rug. One of the videos I saw was actually sent to me by a friend, which is how we got your name, and she's also an ex-Jehovah's Witness. And the video was one of these kids who had seen a picture of a, a schoolmate who had two moms, and so they threw these pictures, and she went home and told her mom, mm -hmm. and then she got lectured about how that was wrong and they weren't following God's plan. Mm -hmm. The whole thing was so coercive and so just there's so much psychological manipulation going on. And, and you even look at the kid is going, oh, OK, all right. You know, I, I can believe that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so and I mentioned to her, I said, is that I had never heard of this video series before that you were talking about. I, I said, is, did, do they just follow that? She said they eat this up. They love mm. that video series. Mm. Oh yeah, become Jehovah's friend. <laughs> um, if if you try looking into that on YouTube, you'll you'll lose hours immersing yourself in some other ghastly stuff. Watchtowers put out the very first uh, video that they released. In fact, it wasn't the first. I think it was the second. They showed a video that was intended to manipulate parents into thinking it was wrong for their children to have toy action figures. If these action big if these action figures resembled wizards. And in the story, Caleb excitedly brings this toy wizard home called Sparlock. Uh, incidentally, Sparlock's become kind of a meme among <laughs> ex-Jehovah's <laughs> Witnesses for the joys of freedom from Watchtower. But um, the, the the mother sits the, the son down and basically tells him that the, the toy is going to make Jehovah sad and that if he keeps it, he'll be like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he'll he'll grow old and miserable. Um, but if he wants to be happy, and if he wants to make Jehovah happy, he needs to throw it away. And the, the final scene shows Caleb throwing his, his toy in the trash just because it's a plastic wizard toy. And in the video that you're describing, you're quite right. The, um, they go to great lengths to show this uh, Caleb's sister called Sophia, it's explained to her that it's wrong that one of her classmates has got two mommies. And the solution that's proposed is that she uh, preaches to her classmates and tells her all about the paradise. So uh, in that situation, apparently, you need to thrust your beliefs in someone else's face. So it's really quite, quite awful material that gets shown to children in these cartoons. I, I remembered the first time that I heard that I remember hearing about Jehovah's Witnesses was 
and actually I know it was back in 1974. I'm a, I'm a confirmed TV nerd. <laughs> and I was reading an article in TV guide about a new show that was on at the time called get Christy love. And the article talked about the star of the show, Teresa Graves. Uh, she's mm. gone now, but it, it talked about that every day she made time to study her Bible. And then they mentioned she was Jehovah's witness. And I thought, okay, what is that? And I began to look at it. Uh, but I've also in, in just doing a little bit of research for today, there are many celebrities who are part of Jehovah's witnesses. Hmm. Yes. And no. <laughs> Prin Prin Prince was a Jeho It depends what you mean by Jehovah's witness. Okay. Basically. I, Prince was one um, I had seen. Prince was a Jehovah's Witness. That that I can confirm. Okay. Um, but probably the biggest name at the moment is Serena Williams. Right. I'd seen uh, that but one. She, she identifies as a Jehovah's Witness, but it seems from what I can gather, and I've just done a video on this, by the way. So if you type in Jehovah's Witnesses Serena Williams on Google, you'll probably on YouTube, you'll probably find my video where I explain it all. But she, um, it seems that she's not baptized, which is why she can get away with doing a lot of things. Um, that ordinary witnesses would be uh, chastised about. One that surprised me was uh, President Eisenhower, because yeah. I know that Jehovah's Witnesses are not political. No, I think it might have been that his, he was raised in a Jehovah's Witness family. But of course, as we've already discussed, there's quite a high turnover rate. So being raised as a Jehovah's Witness is one thing and actually sticking it out yeah. <laughs> is another matter entirely. So what was your so what was the final catalyst for you? What was what was it that did it that said this isn't right, I need to get out of this? You started putting the pieces together. Yeah, so uh, again it, it it really helped kind of moving to Croatia and just having time and space to kind of mull things over in my mind rather than it it felt the way I liken it is like being unplugged. I was, you see that scene in the matrix where they kind of take the jack out of people out of the back of people's heads and suddenly they're in reality. And it was, it felt a little bit like that for me once I was, I was out of this kind of constant cycle of meeting after meeting and, and total indoctrination. And I could just think for a moment and, uh, I, I stayed behind from the meeting one day and, um, I, I claimed I was. I was not feeling well, but actually I, I just needed to kind of take a moment. And I wrote down um, a list of things that I didn't quite agree with. Basically all of these, all of these issues that I'd been carrying with me since I was about 20 that I just kind of filed away in the back of my mind, because when you're a Jehovah's witness, you're told that the way to deal with um, doubts is to wait on Jehovah. I don't know whether anyone's seen the, Book of Mormon musical. Yes. I haven't. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, yes. I, that, yeah. When you said that, that's exactly what I what came to my mind. <laughs> there's a song in there called "Turn It Turn Off." Turn it off. Yes. And um, I haven't seen the musical yet, but I love the song because it perfectly describes mm -hmm. the process of waiting on Jehovah, where you just you're basically it's a thought blocking exercise. So you're saying, well, these things don't matter. What matters is that it's Jehovah's organization. Therefore, I'm not going to worry about it, and I'm just going to go along with what I've been taught and. For the first time, I stopped doing that, and I actually wrote down a list of everything I could think of that I didn't agree with or that I was un uncertain about. And it may not seem like a, a great deal, but I actually came up with nine things. I called them my nine grievances that I had with the organization. And just putting that process of putting them on paper and seeing the words on the paper and looking at that piece of paper just made me think i'm not a jehovah's witness anymore how can i be a jehovah's witness if i don't agree with all these things because what you're told all the time is that you have to agree with everything and there isn't room for your own personal interpretation of what it means to be a jehovah's witness it's all about christian unity it's all about uh, going along with whatever the faithful and discreet whatever the faithful and discreet slave tell you so it was a very liberating experience, but also very troubling because I, I kind of knew that, that, that I was on at the beginning of this spiral and I wasn't sure where I was going to end up. Um, but there was also a book um, 
that I finally found the courage to read called Crisis of Conscience by Raymond Franz. And Raymond Franz actually used to be a governing body member and he had a very interesting life. And when he finally got out of the organization, had some time to collect his thoughts, he wrote uh, a breathtakingly insightful book, again, Crisis of Conscience. And reading that was basically by the time I'd finished and I completely devoured it from from beginning to end. And uh, by the end of it, I was absolutely convinced I needed to get out. Were, were the nine grievances then the basis for you beginning your video series? Oh, well, that's the funny thing is that the, the, there's only there's only maybe one or two of the nine grievances that I still think are really that significant. <laughs> the nine The nine grievances were really just the beginning. And what's interesting is that once I gave myself permission to go online and and see what well what I did was to begin with I looked on Wikipedia because I thought well Wikipedia is going to be kind of neutral and completely objective <laughs> and I, I later found out that Wikipedia is a bit of a, a bit of a battleground between JW apologists and and ex witnesses so it's kind of fifty fifty as to whether it's going to be accurate or not but. There was just enough on Wikipedia. There were just a, a few arguments, a few very basic things that that, that that the writer said that made me think, gosh, that's a really good point. I'd never thought of that before. And by the end of it, I'd given myself permission to go on one of the biggest apostate websites, which is JW Facts. And then I realized just how little I knew and just how deep the rabbit hole went. And there were all of these things the Mexico-Malawi scandal, the UN NGO scandal, Rutherford's letter to Hitler, you just kind of went <laughs> on and on. I was kind of spiraling down this, what on earth have I let myself in for here? But then I think that's when the real anger starts to kick in because you you realise just how much you've been lied to and how much you've been exploited. And I think for a lot of people who leave the witnesses, I mean, I that anger has never left me but I've tried to funnel it and channel it as productively as possible to try and turn a, a negative into a positive. But in my experience, lots of ex-witnesses really struggle to struggle to do that, struggle to channel the anger in a positive way, and, and it leaves them very bitter, which then Watchtower turns around and says, well, look at, look at all these bitter people. You know, you wouldn't want to become like them, would you? You know, so... It's very sad, really. So I noticed in, in just in the, I guess, the faith, I don't know if it's a doctrine, I don't know what this is exactly, but it's, it seems like a very drab existence. I mean, there's no celebrations of any kind. Mm. Um, and and I, I still don't understand the, the blood transfusion where those, those are, not, are not allowed, right? Yeah. What, so, what is up with the, with the lifestyle? Not very interesting. <laughs> well, I... <laughs> I, I say that. I mean, I mean, I had fun as a witness. It wasn't all kind of self-flagellation and you know fasting and stuff. We don't fast, by the way. But um, it it wasn't like it wasn't terrible. We I, I remember going on some really nice holidays with witness friends. I remember going to the Dominican Republic and spending ten days with some friends out there who were who were preaching and having having a really fun time. Um, but they do have these limitations and and there are subtle ways in which the organization imposes itself on people well sometimes subtle sometimes very blatant they don't approve of most celebrations that's something that kind of came about between the presidency of russell who was like the second president and into the presidency of nor they started coming up with all of these things that you're not allowed to do you're not allowed to celebrate birthdays you're not allowed to celebrate christmas you're not allowed to celebrate Mother's Day and so on and so forth. And then you get to 1945 where they say you're not allowed to have a blood transfusion. And they base that on obviously the prohibition against eating blood, which is in the Old Testament. But then you have little mentions of this prohibition against eating blood in the New Testament. And they say, well, therefore, this is incumbent on Christians. And if you wouldn't eat blood, you certainly wouldn't transfuse it so therefore it would be uh, wrong it would be tantamount to fornication is how they put it um for a 
for a Jehovah's Witness to receive blood. Um, but what this does, of course, is it negates the fact that Bible writers didn't even know about blood transfusion. So it wasn't even in their minds when they were writing these verses. And it also negates um, a rabbinic principle called Pikwach Nefesh. I've almost certainly mispronounced it, um, which was basically what Jesus appealed to when he was uh, having his arguments with the uh, with the Jewish religious leaders, when they were trying to say things like, oh, how dare you do this on the Sabbath? How dare you do that on the Sabbath? And he gave the example of a of a bull pull, uh, a bull falling into a pit. And he said, well, you wouldn't leave your bull in a pit on the Sabbath, would you? You'd get it out because otherwise it's going to die. And it was the uh, Pequatch Nefesh principle that he appealed to. So basically the preservation of life comes first. But that's not something they even considered when they came up with this blood teaching. And it's estimated that potentially tens of thousands of Jehovah's Witnesses have died since they introduced this. And we're constantly hearing horror stories of babies that have been born with their mothers dead because there's been complications um, in childbirth. You hear about um, hospital liaison committees. So these are elders that go to the hospitals for the purpose of making sure that the witness stays loyal to the blood teaching, basically enforcing it and making sure that they can't be persuaded by anyone at the last minute. So it's a really, really ugly teaching and it literally costs lives, which is why I make no apology when witnesses do ambush me occasionally on YouTube <laughs> and they say, how dare you, you know, make these videos? I say, well, it's either true or it's not true. If you, if you can prove to me that it's true, please show me the evidence because as far as I can see, not only is it not true, it's also very harmful and it's even killing people. So if you don't mind, I'm going to carry on making these videos. I, I do want people to be able to go to your YouTube site and find and listen to more of these. Is it because you, I, I don't know if you want to expound on this, you, you have a pseudonym. Yeah. So it's, it might be a bit confusing. The channel is called John Cedars. And that's because when I first was starting with my activism, I was undercover and I hadn't yet officially broken with the organization. And um, I used to write under the name John Cedars and, and do various things, but keeping it as the name of my channel is kind of the last vestige of <laughs> of this persona that I adopted. So I kind of keep it as a tribute okay. to, to my journey. So it's the John Cedars channel on YouTube. Okay. And to, I, want, I want you to close this out because one of the last videos that you posted, you responded to a question. What can mm. you offer Jehovah's Witnesses that's better? Can you kind of give just a synopsis? I, I thought it was so incredible what you said. Thank you, yeah. Well, that's a, that's another common thing that Witnesses will sometimes say. And by the way, they, they're not really allowed on my channel. <laughs> and I think, it, in fairness to them, I think it says a lot about their their personal quest for truth, that they're even finding the courage to go on my channel to begin with to engage with me. Um, so I kind of respect that. But one thing that, that they will sometimes say is, you know, why are you taking this faith away from people? Uh, what do you have to offer that's better? If you don't have anything better to offer, shouldn't you just leave them to it? And I say, well, first of all, um, I'm not I'm not in the business of giving people a surrogate set of beliefs. Uh, it would be like telling a fireman um, that having rescued you from your burning home, he needs to build you a new home. Uh, it's not my job to tell you what to believe next. That is entirely your decision as to whether you continue on with some other form of Christianity or whether you become atheist or agnostic or whatever. None of my business, and I don't lose a, a moment's sleep at night as to what your decision will end up being. It's entirely your call. But one thing I definitely can offer that's infinitely better than being a Jehovah's Witness is thinking for yourself and no longer outsourcing your mind to eight men in New York who are entirely unworthy of your loyalty. Wow, that is amazing and awesome. And we uh, we love your work. So just to remind people, um, Lloyd Evans is the author of The Reluctant Apostate. I looked at the reviews and he's got some amazing reviews on this on this book. 
Um, so please go to Amazon.com. You can buy it there. Check it out. Also, check out the John Cedars um, YouTube channel. Again, it has over 30,000 subscribers. It attracts about 120,000 unique visitors every month. Some pretty amazing stuff. It was very interesting to watch. It was informative. And I can see how, for those who are looking for answers, it would definitely help uh, clear up some of the questions that you might have. So thank you, Lloyd, so much for sharing your story and being a part of our podcast. It's been an absolute thrill. I'm genuinely thankful to you for helping, for letting me talk about it. It's not something that gets talked about enough, in my opinion. So thanks for doing this. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Recovering from Religion podcast. If you have questions for either of us or suggestions for future topics, you can email us at podcast at recoveringfromreligion.org. If you think you'd like to be one of our guests, we have a form on the podcast page of the Recovering From Religion website. We'd love to hear from you.